Let's go down to the urban homestead, Pasadena by the freeway. Right down there on the urban homestead, Jules and his family are working away. Come on down to the farm in the city, back to the future, back to the plan. Right down there on the urban homestead, loving the life back into the land. Oh, ooh, ooh. help the garden grow, singing. Oh, ooh, ooh. we've got to help the garden grow. Welcome to the Urban Homestead Radio. We are your hosts, Anise, Justin, Jordan. Special thanks to our sponsor, Layman's, in Kidron, Ohio. For over 60 years, they have provided practical, non-electrical tools and appliances and home goods. Our family has been a huge fan of theirs since the 1990s and have purchased many quality products for our own homestead. When technology fails, their products will certainly work. So check out their website and online catalog at layman's.com, and that's L-E-H-M-A-N-S.com. We appreciate the support of this podcast. Oh, oh, oh. Help the garden grow, singing. Oh, oh, oh. We've got to help, help the garden grow. Oh, oh, oh. Help the garden grow, singing. Oh, oh, oh. We've got to help the garden grow. a friend of ours, Chris Kirsten of the Savory Institute. Hi, Chris. Um, thanks for thanks coming for, and, and calling us up. It's been back. a while. It has Thank been you, a while. Like, I'm passing through town. I'm like, awesome. Yeah. Last time I was here, I was selling you guys olive oil. Olive oil. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, we were a good customer. That was like a whole lifetime ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. It was probably like for five years ago. For me, it was a whole lifetime ago. It does ago. feel like a lifetime. <laughs> I've been busy. Maybe it's five years yeah. ago, but yeah. yeah. That's a lifetime. Yeah, right. <laughs> So Farmer years. <laughs> yeah, right. Farmer years. That's it. Yeah. So, um, how, I think, um, tell us the story how we met. I, I remember how, where, how we met. I remember met, how we met, but, but let's see if our story is Let's see how right. far. <laughs> it was in 2009. No, no. Do you know the year? I don't remember the I year. I think it was at EcoFarm. No, well, you, no yeah. the first one yeah. was a few days earlier. That's right. That's right. It was I at the Nevada that. City Film uh-huh. Festival. You saw the yeah. film. Where, that's right, you guys screened the film. Uh-huh. And it's, I, it's funny, I, I meet with famous people sometimes for work, but the one that kind of lodges in my brain was that was the event where I met Patrick Stewart. Yes, yeah, we did too. The total, like, Star Trek dork. And so yeah. that was, like, high on my list. Yeah. <laughs> to boldly go. But, yeah, that was, yeah, was one of the highlights. Yeah, we have and then I remember and and we so. met at... I remember Annie and I were at the shop of an eco conference buying coffee. Yeah. And then you and came I walked behind up us. Just totally like, shamelessly. And was just like, <laughs> we should be friends. Yeah. All right. And we were. And you guys were both we like, oh, God, one of these types again. <laughs> but we hold, I think it was like three or four days. We just hung out. It right. was awesome. We ate with you and we just hung out with you. you were a great company. And at the and time, you were really working for the olive oil. Chap- yeah. Chapin. Yeah. So, so the, what we were doing there at the olive oil place is we had 600 acres of 100 year old trees. And then we had the heirloom stone fruits, the heirloom citrus, the avocados. You guys know all this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then we integrated the livestock in the orchard. So the sheep and the cows did the mowing, goats handled in basic weeds, chickens debugged and fertilized. And we got some claim to fame for that because it, it cut our fuel usage down by 85%. And so having more crops per acre and then really taking more of a holistic approach, um, you know, really got us kind of uh, noticed by a lot of people. And your olive oil was really good. We we started buying it for our front porch. People farm actually still ask for it. Yeah, yeah. 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 We had uh, people that you know 
lots of little like buying clubs and community centers and, and, and food clubs were doing that. Um, the Amish were buying quite a bit of it and they were making it into uh, mayonnaise and then selling it in their little mm-hmm. buying clubs and little communities and stuff like that too. Yeah. It made good mayonnaise. Yeah, it did make good mayonnaise. Yeah, I miss it. Yeah. What was it? And, um, also yeah. the poultry, right? Did yeah, the broil- pasture. Broil- yeah, 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 so we did, we did about, gosh, I don't remember some of these things. We did about 2,000 broilers a year. And then like we chicken tractors, chicken tractor, kind chicken of tractor. So it was all truly pasture based, truly mm-hmm. mobile, truly outdoors. Everything was on organic grain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was. Yeah. I remember was the the story. <laughs> I think was really telling when you said that you barely made costs just trying to do it the right way. The the pasture raised chickens, yeah. you know, to actually do it right. Do it right. I think you guys were like almost. Almost like not even Break making, even most of the yeah, time making profit at it. Yeah, any. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. To really, to really do poultry right, I think we've got to see consumer values shift. For the last seventy years, it's been this notion that chickens are cheap meat, mm-hmm. and so people expect that. And then when they go, oh, well, I'm going to buy a better quality meat, they think it's going to do the same thing that beef mm-hmm. and other meats do, and go, oh, it should go up by fifteen or twenty percent, and it really should go up four or five hundred percent. It's yeah. funny people would balk at paying six or seven dollars a pound for a chicken. But then they'd go, well, I don't want that because that's now a $30 bird. But give me those little filet mignons for $45. <laughs> it was like, really? Yeah. And you're going to take these two little medallions home for $45 and you have this big, beautiful chicken? So it's just a value thing. I think people are just not used to appreciating chicken for all that it is. When you take it out of a feedlot setting and you move it back out onto the land, it intrinsically gets more expensive, so uh, what, more so than beef. What got like you started in agriculture? I remember you I remember telling the story. some stories. It was a really good story. story. I remember And then that. about how the corporations got into the colleges, yeah. too. Tell us how you got like into that. that. Yeah, so I was 17 years old. My parents were both in just typical corporate America, big business, and we were just you know kind of a middle-class family. Um, my mom worked for a big communications company and, and had kind of started at the bottom and over a you know 30 year career kind of climbed her way up and had nothing to do with agriculture my background I mean my exposure to agriculture was like reading Farmer Boy when I was like you know, 15 and I was like no, hey, that was a good story hey, like, I remember it was my favorite book and I, it was I read it like five times right? you know why it was because it was it wasn't just about the farm it was the in detail of the di- the dishes I think one time about roasting sure. a pig well, they, did actually, like two they did actually so. have advice in there they yeah. would before yeah. when their corn got frozen they'd go out before and they Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't have a garden hose, so they would take buckets of water and hit it before really before it would freeze. It's yeah. like, hey, here you're learning how to farm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I read I read that one first, and then read the rest of the series. But that was like that part out. Yeah. And so then, when I was 17, I started dating a gal that uh, her family had a ranch, and I just fell in love with the lifestyle. It was a total new exposure for me, and just loved it. I mean, it was these big, beastly animals, being out in the sun, mm-hmm. getting my hands dirty. I mean, it was just a totally different lifestyle. And there was something really primal that I didn't even know I was looking for that was like, okay, this needs to be a part of your life. And so then, you know, you're 17 years old, you're looking for colleges, things like that. And it's like, I now decide I'm going to be an agriculture student. Mm-hmm. And my parents were like, what are you doing? <laughs> There's no future. Yeah. We thought we Much raised you right. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, Where did we go wrong? Everybody had, was moving away from that, you know, for the last couple you of generations. Get dirty? Exactly, and so, but and and I really had to go all in in, in this. I mean, my mom at that point 
was high enough up at her corporation that they had a program that said, um, for executive managers' kids, we will pay for your college education. You can work for us during the summer, and then within, I think it was two or three years of graduating, they guaranteed you a $70,000 a year job. Wow. And I said, no, so I'm not doing that. That's not what I'm into. Um, they didn't so. take that too well, huh? <laughs> Were you it feeling okay? I'm not sure why I was sure what I was doing. <laughs> 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 it's yeah. old, you know, it's like, you know, you only live once. And so, uh, so yeah, so I started buying cattle of my own um, and getting into it from there. And then after university, you know, in university it was kind of a, an eye-opening experience because it was still a land-grant college and, and kind of seeing what parts were still influenced by big chemical companies, whether it was organic, and I'm doing air yeah. quotes, or not, <laughs> um, you know, because there's still a very large-scale, conventionally-minded organic notion there, and mm-hmm. so I got a lot of that kind of pushed down my throat. I really wanted something that was more nature-based and nature-scale, and so um, after university, I started working at this farm that mm-hmm. where I met you guys mm-hmm. through uh, and doing that, and then four years ago now, um, some opportunities came up at the farm that it was like, okay, the kids want to come back. So, so I was partner on that operation, and then it was a family farm. It was a family yeah. farm. So I was the first outside hire, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and was heavily involved in the management, and then had a, a partnership in the operation. But the couple that I was partnered with were older, and they had kids that were my age, and those kids were wanting to come back and getting more involved in the operation. And so, um, for a number of reasons, it was a good time for me to step away. But we had been working with the Savory Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan Savory, if you guys, do you guys know much about mm-hmm. Alan Savory? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he did the TED Talk in 2011, 2012, something like that. It's now become one of the most popular TED Talks of all time. I think it's top 75 now, mm-hmm. and it's all about regenerative grazing. So we were, you know, all big on livestock's been my thing from the beginning, even though I've done orchards and mushrooms and row crops and other things. Never done, never done veggies on scale, so I don't, I'm, I, I'm not. Everyone has their own little niche. Their own niche. Yeah. But yeah, veggies the one thing I haven't done. Maybe that shows. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we had been talking to them about being a hub, which they were just in the process. You know, Alan's been teaching holistic management for... 50 years, uh, and has been working on the problem of solving desertification for longer than that. He's 83 years old now, uh, born and raised in uh, Zimbabwe, which previously was Rhodesia, and he was in the war, and uh, all of those efforts, and um, he's developed a way to heal land using grazing animals, Mm -hmm. and um, so we were working on being a education center for them. And in 2009, he started the Savory Institute saying, I really want this to be global, mm-hmm. and I want there to be local support systems. Mm-hmm. So every region has an education center that's like a field office. Mm-hmm. And so um, so we were talking to them about being one of their field offices. And then as things were kind of changing lanes at the farm, I called up the Savory Institute and said, listen, you know, we're probably not going to be a Savory hub, um, and I'm going to be going and looking for other opportunities. And they said, well, we would really be interested in interviewing with you and uh, have been really impressed with your hub application and where things were going. So I drove out to Boulder, where we're headquartered, and I interviewed with them. And I thought, oh, gosh, what do I do? What do I do? I've got two kids. Like, I'm not going to move to Boulder. Like, my whole family, everything's here. Like, my whole everything. And they said, no, you can, you can work remotely. And it was right when they were just starting up this new organization to really go global. I was the first employee hired after the, kind of the C-suite um, the CEO and the, the COO, um, and so I was kind of the first person brought on after that, and I've been there four years now, and now we've got 30 of these field offices around the globe that have all gone yeah, through the map. a year of accreditation and training, yeah, um, and onboarding to then go be 
kind of our ambassadors in the region. Uh, so I travel a ton now working with these field offices, and then now our team is 15 people. Um, and we kind of consider ourselves the global conductors, that like we put the right resources in the right place at the right time for the right reasons. Uh, so we want to intentionally stay small and nimble and really have this be a global grassroots movement. Um, so that's what I'm doing a lot of today, is all focus more on that education side, working with farmers around the globe. Um, What's your, I mean, besides, obviously we, California, drought is an issue, but um, what's the major issues you're dealing with around the world? I assume it's water. You said to prevent desertification. Desertification is the biggie, yeah. Um, yeah, it's what, you know, what we do is we try to get people to see, to raise their livestock in a way that mimics nature. And when you've got functioning predator-prey relationships in an ecosystem, animals stay bunched and moving all the time. Mm -hmm. They stay close together, they impact an area, and they move on. And many times they don't come back to that area for, might be six months, might be yeah. three years yeah. in some region. It depends on the area. And what animal. Um, and what kind of animal it is, yeah. And so we focus on getting ranchers to go back to that system. And immediately people kind of go, well, I've heard of this <laughs> rotational grazing. That might be what you're talking about. But we add additional layers on top of that that take into account social, environmental, and economic goals for the land manager. So, you know, I always use the example that, you know, if you have two properties that have the same amount of acreage, the same, we'll use livestock, but this would apply to anything, uh -huh. any other crop, anything. But, you know, let's say they have the same number of cows and everything about them is the same. Conventional wisdom would tell us they should use the same best management practices so that they should be, you know, if if somebody says the best thing to do is to spread an inch of compost over your whole entire rangeland, that they should both be doing it. And we in holistic management would argue opposite of that and say each of them have a separate context. Each of them have different goals for their life. Each of them have different resources available. Each of them have different decision makers. And each of them have different amounts of money in the bank. They shouldn't be making decisions the same way. They should be making decisions entirely different. Only one layer of that equation is similar. And so holistic management is a proactive triple bottom line planning process. So you plan all of your grazing moves a year in advance oh, wow. okay. in June. Oh, well, there's ground nesting birds there in June. That's the wrong time to go. Uh, so we'll move them over to this paddock, which happens to be when we need to take our family vacation, and it's very close to our herd manager's house. Um, and then your next move is into that paddock after the ground nesting birds have moved on and there's you know shade along the riverbank or something like that, and then you move into that area. So you build all that plan out a year in advance, but the part that we do that's really different is we base everything on full recovery of mm -hmm. the grasses. Yeah. So most people think that when the leaf blade grows back on grass that it's recovered. We, we base all of our rotational grazing thinking around that. And in reality, you have to wait for the roots to fully recover. That would be true. Because every time that, that, yeah, that makes a grazer bites right. a blade mm -hmm. of grass, the roots slough off mm -hmm. to regrow the blade of grass above. And if the animal's there to bite again, mm -hmm. you don't have those reserves. So how do you check that? Like, is it something that you check So we teach ranchers how to figure out how those perennials regrow okay. and at what rate. And it'll be contextual for every region okay. of the world. Um, so it, it, it'll be the same between neighbors yeah, there, but yeah. it, it'll, it'll be different regional, based on how much rain you species, get, how productive yeah. your soil is, you know, what fertility you have and all that. And so then you build in everything on that basis of like, okay, if it takes 30 days for roots to recover, we're going to have a 30-day recovery before we ever come back again. So mm -hmm. everything's based on full recovery. Some places it's eight months, mm -hmm. you know, whatever that recovery is. If you're in a low productive region like, uh, you know, 
short step prairie. I mean, it's like years sometimes in those wow. places. And so you build that into the plan um, so that you're not coming back to those regions before they're fully back. But the beauty of, of how grasslands and grazers work together so well is that when that animal bites the blade of grass, it seems like this would be a competitive thing, like it just hurt that plant. Well, how it impacts the whole system is that when those roots slough off, the bottom of those roots are organic matter, and that decays in the soil, and this builds really deep, rich soils. In pretty much every other ecosystem on the planet, plant litter or dead vegetation falls to the surface of the soil and has to get integrated in from the top down. But in grasslands, because mm-hmm. oh, these yeah. roots slough off all the time, the soils are built from the, from the bottom, bottom up. And so they're the deepest, richest soils in the world. So yeah. our whole organization the focused. Of the heartland. When, when, when the, they the said the bison, when the, the bison Midwest, was all, it was before, before civilization. Feet, I think they like three, five feet. Now that we all, you know, rape with monoculture <laughs> of, you know, yeah. corn and soil. It's all no longer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the original, the original. I think, they said, I think they said it was like three to five feet deep in some places. Oh, yeah. yeah. Some places it's meters deep. And that yeah. all came from from grazing action of nature functioning mm-hmm. correctly. Mm-hmm. And now as we've broken those natural cycles, we're coming in and teaching people how to replicate them and put them back into domestic systems yeah. on farms and ranches yeah. of all sizes. Try yeah. to do it back yeah. to where, it, you know, it's not going to be open land, but it you can try to emulate it in right. certain areas. So, so our whole focus is grasslands because we think grasslands are the most critical ecosystem to humanity and they're the least underappreciated. Nobody's talking about grasslands out there. Everybody's mm-hmm. talking about forests and rainforests and the ocean, oceans, which are all good things. But grasslands sequester more carbon than any other ecosystem on the planet. Most of our water reservoirs come in from grassland percolation. percolation. All of our major food-growing regions of the world are former grasslands for that reason, for that deep fertility. And a billion people of the world live on grasslands. Nobody's talking about them. So our focus is all on grasslands, and that's why. So... That's what I'm doing these days. So have you, <laughs> I mean, that was a long way around. Looks, like, yeah, well, no. <laughs> looks <laughs> like you know what you're doing. No, looks like you know so what you're doing. So what was, um, have you seen any farmers, like on some of the places you started with, changing the minds? Have you seen like progress and like before, after, before so and after you've seen them like really yeah. say this works? I mean, so have, it, are they still fighting? What like, keeps you going or what's mm-hmm. inspired you? I mean, what's like, the, maybe, or what's the most successful project? Like, oh yeah, I came to this one and this one and it's really, yeah. but now it's seen some ma- you know, yeah. major most, changes. Yeah, I've got a few that come to mind. Uh, the, the first one I think of is this, this project in Turkey and these two young guys named Durkin and Vulcan <laughs> got MBAs in Europe and went back to their like family homestead very old kind of derelict you know building in a very small Turkish community in, in eastern Turkey so on the Syria side mm-hmm. and um, or the Asian side and I went and visited them when they were first getting started or I should go back so they they get their MBAs and they decide we're going to go back to the old family homestead and we're going to make the work. go with this we're going to make work. this work and you know similar to how you guys have kind of gone all in on stuff they they did a very similar approach to this. We are kind of leaving all of those other opportunities. We're going to focus on this, and we're going to work with the local villagers here, the farmers that have worked here for a very, very long time. And so, I went the first year they were getting started. They got accredited to be a savory hub, and they start teaching people in their region. So I'm going and checking it out, and we were doing some video work with them and some other stuff for a documentary. And they introduce us to the local farmers there. This one guy in particular I'm talking to through a translator, and he was like, we get it, man. He's like, we get that the soil's getting worse. We have bills to pay. Yeah, like, that's how it comes down. Like, you know, we gold, have yeah. bills to pay. I don't know what we're supposed to do differently. 
And it was hard talking through a translator because it's like, okay, I've seen this in my own life. Like, we can help you. And it's like, these guys can help you. They're getting all the right material. They can help you. And so, um, and this was all over, like, tea, like traditional <laughs> Turkish tea in, like, a field. You, like, sit on the ground. You, like, burn five sticks and, like, heat the heat the pot. And then we all have this traditional kind of Turkish tea. And they all smoke filter the cigarettes while we're there. So very, very Turkish. So, um, like, three years goes by. I've now been to Turkey, I think, four times. A lot, yeah. Every time three or four times, yeah. And I'll probably go again this year. Um, it's one of my favorite places. It's so similar to California, guys. I mean, you could literally... If you didn't, like, take a flight, like, if somebody, like, drugged you (laughs) and got you there, you'd think you were here. I mean, it's just so... And really, I guess, on, like, the parallels, it's on the same longitude, uh, or very close, but it's, like, Johnson grass everywhere, and, like, rice fields and apricot orchards. I mean, it just feels like, uh, more like Central California, but very much like home. And so, I go back three years later, and I go and I meet the same guy, and we're talking to him, and his version of I get it, this change now, he's got tears in his eyes, and he was like... Oh, I get it. We can have our cake and eat it too when we change the way that we manage things. And it was just so interesting because I've never seen anywhere else in the world to the level that this project has established a connection between the old conventional farmers and these young guys that want to do something different mm-hmm. and they've built a mutual respect there and a synergy that wow. we just don't see a yeah, lot no. in our day. Like, you, know, you guys know. Yeah, but they also yeah. bills the pay and then you sort of cut corners and then you think and then eventually you become a cave well, I mean just because they need to survive right. or the old and you just start cropping well, yes. even, your, like, your family's hungry or, yeah or, yeah. or yeah. the old and new just doesn't mix we just exactly. don't see it or compromise we've had issues with compromise you do a little bit and then you turn that's not how you originally started I don't know if they're doing some training, but they've been going around all morning, those yeah. two. It's like a war really zone here. They probably have less helicopters in Turkey. They've been going over all morning, and the like kids shaking are in the house. School, so that's the There's screaming background. in the back. So. <laughs> we don't have an audience. We don't have an audience. You're actually standing by the closer. You in the back. <laughs> Put those lighters down. It's okay. <laughs> um, so that one's one of my favorites. The other story that I, I really like is the community that we work with in Zimbabwe. Um, when I say community, think of a very you know tribal mud hut type setting, um, and this community came and said, we'd really like to start managing our livestock better. And, mm-hmm. and in, in Zimbabwe and much of Africa, livestock really are livestock. It's where you keep your money. Because That's where your money is. That's the, the, the wealth is in, yeah. in the animals. It's That's a stock it. market. It's That's a stock it. market. This, yeah. The banking system yeah. is so corrupt there that nobody trusts keeping their money in a brick no, and mortar it's, bank it's like animals. we would in Europe or America. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So they don't even necessarily raise animals to eat them. It's really just a way to hold on to capital. And so every day the fathers go out and they go graze their animals. And they have no plan, no program. They just kind of graze whatever's there. So they're overgrazing all the time. They're not building in time for rest into their program or their protocols. And they're just degrading the land like crazy. And so we went in and they invited us to come in and work with them. And we said, okay, step one, just step one. Let's move all the animals together in one herd. Mm -hmm. You guys can still mark them, ear tag them, do whatever you're going to do so that each person still owns theirs. But let's put them into one central herd. And then 
we only need like four or five guys to go and grazing now. So it freed up 80% of the male workforce. So they take turns doing the grazing, but then now all the, the men in the village are available to do things. And so the first thing they did was they built an irrigation pipe to the garden. Now, instead of walking you know, away from the other end of town with buckets at a time and watering each individual plant, you walk to one central place in the garden and you still take buckets to each individual plant, but it's a much shorter spot. So it got a lot more efficient. They built a bigger fence around the garden to keep out elephants and, and large game there. Uh, which is a big problem. And then the men went and they built a school right next to that. So now the kids are no longer working in the garden. They're going to the school. The garden got twice as big because they don't have to walk and back and forth so much. The animals are now being grazed together, and then now they're grazing the right way. They're healing their pasture lands. The river in the community started flowing again because they were healing the soil. The soil is able to hold on to more water, which then percolates out slowly. So when they have a big rainstorm, they don't get floods but rather the soil holds onto it like a sponge and then trickles it out into the river throughout the whole year. So the river came back. That hadn't flowed in 40 years. Um, and then um, they had so much surplus meat and vegetables at that point that they opened a store in town, and now they're feeding the three communities around them and have a store in town. That's pretty amazing. And that's just from, like, a couple of small well, ships. Well, I mean, Zimbabwe's got... You hear about Zimbabwe with the government and the president and stuff, like, issues Ugali, like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's this, like, thing. But did the... Did originally they survive for millennia on that? Did they lose how to do it, or and you had to just reteach well, them, or it they just were? Of the it was just because the government taught them the wrong way how to do it, or some chemical company. Or it's what? a both and. Um, we've been overgrazing this planet for at least thousands of years. The Sahara Desert. Yeah, so yeah. we've been. You can see the signs of desertification. I think that two things have done more negative impact for our planet than probably anything else and it's poor grazing management and tillage and i think a lot of the problems we see today we attribute to petroleum which we have to get under control i mean we cannot be a petroleum-based economy any longer but there's a bigger issue here that isn't getting enough credit being talked about and when you do intensive tillage and you graze animals the wrong way and you damage the soil the soil is nature's bank for where to put carbon and put carbon in a place where it's fertility not a liability. So in the atmosphere, it's a liability. It's doing bad mm -hmm. things. When you put it in the soil, it creates mm -hmm. fertility. It's mm -hmm. organic matter. Mm -hmm. It holds on to water. It holds on to nutrients. It feeds plants. It becomes the whole system becomes this crux built on carbon. And so people have been doing rotational grazing, but they haven't been building in that root recovery time. And they weren't doing triple bottom line. They weren't really thinking about the social, environmental, and economic factors so all together. Yeah. And so... There definitely was traditional wisdom that did it a lot better, and we've just lost so much of that in the last mm -hmm. 50 years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but I think there was still degradation going on even prior to that. Um, that requires a little it bit probably of shit. So that's why I say it's a both end. It was, We've it exacerbated. I think it's well, I mean, acceleration. I think, yeah, if I said the desert, desertification, um, well, Syrian drought, it, the, caused the, war, Something migration. causes, it's a domino effect. It's the acceleration and then... It's just, it's faster. I think it's happening on Absolutely. a lot faster you, scale these days. most conflicts in history of large scale, they usually have an agricultural root yeah. somewhere. Syria mm -hmm. They said, yeah, they said Syria was, was I think they said it's the first one that actually directly tied to the drought. Tied right, to right, yeah. I mean, you see it manifest itself as an, an, an uprising. I mean, even the French Revolution. I mean, it you was look a, at yeah. an uprising. It was agriculture and a lot of other that, things. It <laughs> feels cultural and has all these other pieces to it, but it, what fueled that... Or mm -hmm. what's the spark to the fuel, maybe, was 
didn't have food security. Mm-hmm. When you don't have food security, the people really start rethinking their values quickly. Yeah. They know? say they're four square meals away from anarchy. Well, wait, three right. Or three or yeah. Three? No, it's four. It's, it's like because once once it's past three, three the next three. day it's four square <laughs> meals away from. People can maybe hang on for three. When it goes to day two, they're like, no, nope. I'm out. <laughs> Where's my benchmark? <laughs> who, who can yeah, we? Right. Who can we? Uh, who can we hunt? Hunger Games. Yeah, it's a. I mean. Those are success stories, like you said, you don't hear about Zimbabwe, you hear on the news. Yeah, just Mugabe a, yeah, and all, all the, stuff, all the that. stuff that's going on there. Yeah, I mean, we, we work globally, and so there's lots of stories like that. A, a quick sh- domestic one would be like uh, Will Harris at White Oak Pastures was a very conventional rancher. And that's grown in? Up, uh, jo- Bluffton, Georgia. Oh, um, oh, yeah, I know that. He's, yeah, he's been, been in a lot of films. He's yeah, pretty famous. Because yeah. of the yeah. shift that he's exactly. made. So okay. he he was doing things very conventional, a lot of chemical use. And he really says it was like getting off drugs. I had to wean myself off like drug use. Reaching for that just, bottle. It's just easy. <laughs> easy. And then all of a sudden you get into a bind of like, oh, I'm getting out of this system and I have to rebuild health back into my ecosystem. That's, that's, it takes time. And it, takes, and it takes a lot of like... You know, cost you it's not as easy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you you have to have a lot of commitment yeah. to get there. And so um, he was very very conventionally minded, uh, and then he started going no chemical. And then he introduced other species. Uh, he's got a two thousand acre there and uh, property there in Bluffton. Then he built a uh, slaughter plant on site. So he's the first person in the U.S. that has a USDA approved abattoir and cut and wrap plant on their property. So the animals never have to leave. So really taking welfare to the highest level. He doesn't that he, stress them as much. He could. He doesn't stress them. Um, he now has, through multi-speciation, he now has 100,000 animals on that property, all pasture-raised, all holistically managed, and the land is feel, healing faster than he knows what to do with it. I mean, it's just like going like crazy. Last year, my big project was working on some documentaries for our... Um, for our movement, and I spent a lot of time at Will's place filming. Uh, we have a, a video called "The Story of Meat" that features him intensively. So, yeah, yeah. there was another documentary. Did it? Was it? What was that called? Was it? Where, where, where? Which one? There was another one about like what from like meat to what you what you wore. Yeah, that so one? that was part of that. We did four episodes last year, so we did meat, dairy, wool, okay. leather, leather, leather. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of a new program we've been starting called Land to Market. Ranchers and holistic management have been doing what we call biological monitoring for since the 80s. So 35, 40 years have been measuring what happens on their land. So part of their triple bottom line planning is going, where's the first place I would see that I was wrong? And how do I measure for that? And so they were doing soil organic matter and desirable versus non-desirable species. You know, they were getting a score rating their property health. Where is it at? How is it getting better or worse over time? So three years ago, we started looking at that and said, boy, that's a lot of data out there in the world. What if we started aggregating that as a way to measuring impact? And so we, we went to the academic community with partners like the Nature Conservancy and some universities here in the U.S. and said, what if we started aggregating this? Like, what would that look like? And they were like, okay, this is all really cool what you guys have here, but this is anecdotal evidence. <laughs> like, you know, you, you know, one year you do the measurement, the next year you do the measurement. Like, you don't have standardized processes for that. It's like, we're not going to be able to, to aggregate this globally. And I said, so we said, well, help us. And so we tore down that whole program. We built it back up in a way that's incredibly robust, the scientific community views as empirical data. And so the things we measure now, and I'll just give you the, the nerdy list for those <laughs> listeners that are interested, but we look at soil organic matter, soil carbon, water infiltration rates, 
uh, soil water holding capacity, soil microbiology, um, percentage of bare ground, so leading indicators for erosion, desirable versus not desirable plants, wildlife populations. I think that's the vast majority of them. There's about 30 of them. That, those yeah. are the main categories. So we're basically looking at soil, water, biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And then we score a property. So we say, you know, what level is it at? And it might be in a degenerative place. It might be closer to like a net zero, which is what we would call sustainable. Or it might be in the, what we call this regenerative category to where we're actually healing the land while producing really high quality products. And that's where all our energy is focused on. That's what we think humanity needs the most of is net positive. So it's like zero to 10 and zero being good and you it's can like you can think of that kind of scale. It's actually being, for us zero yeah. to two hundred. Zero to two hundred. Okay, two hundred to desert. Two hundred to desert, and zero is good, or or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah but in essence, you can get a score, and then we can trend that score over time. And so, because we've built this massive massive network of trained people and field offices, if somebody struggles, we can help get them over the line. If they're not able to get into the regenerative category, we can move them over. And so we call that measurement ecological outcome verification. So now we're, we're actually measuring the outcomes on the land. So, you know, think about like um, organic, which in no way am I knocking. Organic's great and it's done a lot of good for this industry. But we tell farmers with practices, okay, you're allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do this. And then we just kind of assume that the outcomes from that are good, but we never quantify them. And so yeah. we've been putting all our energy around building a quantification system that measures what happens in the land. So this would work on any soil-based system. Because we have this massive support network around ranching, right now we're rolling it out in its early stages, specifically around livestock production. So that's how we're working on the products that come from livestock, so meat, dairy, wool, leather, and then we've added in cashmere, starting to do, hopefully have some, some work to announce soon in Mongolia, um, and then pet food. Oh, pet food. Yeah. Good. Pet foods. We just, yeah, we just that's signed a, big... a deal with a new pet food company, so I've got to wait for a couple more things before I can say their name. Um, but, yeah, they're going to be that's a, that that's is, a whole that racket. Is, that's an underappreciated. Well, it's a racket, too. They do under, all the... Yeah, it's, it's bad. It's very little meat in the... It's it's often the worst of the worst that goes into some of these products. Mm-hmm. It's bad, and then it, it reflects on all pets' health as well. And and many people who don't eat meat still feed their mm-hmm. pets exactly. meat. Yes. And because that's what they're designed to eat, and, and more people agree on that than necessarily what humans are designed to eat. And so, um, it's a whole bigger market too of people that are mm-hmm. still engaging with a meat purchase, right. but uh, want to have the, the right pets. the right stuff yeah, that's good for their. Like animals. I said, some of them don't even have meat; they have byproducts. Yeah, it's like corn, like corn right. and soy, corn. and then they want to <laughs> a lot of corn and soy the whole Colors. byproducts thing is interesting though because like organ meats are considered a byproduct mm-hmm. but organ meats are pretty nutrient dense so the yeah. industry right now is trying to redefine mm-hmm. what byproducts mean so that the ones that are doing bad things get Relabeled. penalized for that but the ones that just want to use a wider array of the whole animal and honor the whole animal yeah. are able to do which that. in animal in pet food is better for the pet right uh, you, i mean in nature, when a predator or hunts it a prey, the they usually eat the organs the first. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's livers, unfortunate. Kidneys, yeah. You know, people don't realize that. It, right. it is. I think if, when people choose to eat meat, I think they could be eating a lot more organ meat as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it goes for both. Mm-hmm. So, what's your? Um, wow, it's a lot. So, what's your? What's your? <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of questions. I know. There's a test afterwards. There's a test afterwards. Triple, triple something and triple something. Yeah, something. I know. So, <laughs> Triple bottom line. It's basically looking at, instead of just looking at profit, you have to look at the social and the environmental parts as well. And but would you go beyond um, 
like would you go into beyond like grass would you get into ag the agriculture i mean aspect I mean, of that in future you're, future you're like focusing corn, on soy, filter in through that there's a lot of discussion around that right now and i think mm -hmm. you know the tool that we've developed that a lot of this partnership's been done with Michigan State University, and they actually house all the data in this program. They have a team of grad students that, that evaluate it at the meta level and make sure that um, it's as robust as it can be and, and that there's uh, as, uh, as authentic as it can be. Um, they've already kind of built out a protocol of what would work for crops. We need to figure out how to roll that out um, in a way that makes sense that there's still a support system for those folks in cropping, because that's not our core competency. Mm -hmm. So if somebody says, I want to raise regenerative bison, I'm right there with you. I can mm -hmm. help you. Mm -hmm. We've, I mean, we're the largest ranching organization in the world. I can help anybody in the livestock world with that. I want to raise regenerative cranberries. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> You're on your own. I'm not, we're not your guys, right? <laughs> you know? Um, and so we need to build the right partnerships of but it's people. Earth, you're caring for the earth just a different. different right, yeah. but, but we want it to uh -huh. go that ubiquitous to where we're measuring outcomes in all of our systems. I mean, again, going back to organic, I don't want chemicals in my food. I think it's great. I would love if organic got to an outcome base. It's like you could test every product simply and easily. And then the farmers aren't stuck proving themselves innocent. You know, it's like they spend so much time on paperwork and on the phone yes. and doing everything mm -hmm. when the ones that are doing the wrong way don't have to do any of that. It you know? true. And so if we had outcomes that if there was a way to scan food at like point of sale or point of, you know, really simply, and there's some people working on this through visual spectration or some fancy science words I'm not good at. Um, you know, to me, that would be like another example of outcomes. So we're, we're focusing on measuring the outcomes of the land. Because like even you mentioned grass-fed. Grass-fed's mm -hmm. a great example. Mm -hmm. We know grass-fed's healthier for the eater. Mm -hmm. We don't know that it's healthier for the land. There's lots of times where you can be overgrazing mm -hmm. livestock and mm -hmm. still have a grass-fed product. Mm -hmm. But now the consumer of that is, is playing a part in that degradation. Mm -hmm. What we want is to measure outcomes and give consumers the ability to participate and playing a role in healing the planet as well, even if they're disconnected. I mean, you guys have done such a good job here of like bringing food production into the city. But for those that are that are so much more disconnected from their food system, so, so many of them, particularly millennials, still want to participate. Mm -hmm. And now that whole cliche or, or notion of vote with your dollar mm -hmm. actually has some weight yeah, to it. Because like, but, I mean, is, is it terrifying? Yeah, it is is. The, the thing is, though, is because of the money's in the organic now, mm -hmm. and people say grass fed is good. I'm not saying it's not, but, but just like with chickens, we had there was a whole thing with the California cage free, what is the free range, cage free. They did the whole thing, so they even though the term was cute, the technically it just meant it had a window to the outdoors, something right. like yeah. it's a technical. Well, I mean, even grass fed yeah. beef is animal treated right, is it exactly? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, just because it's eating grass, I mean, it could be in a little tiny little patch exactly. of land. There's I mean, such a thing, a lot of people know there's such a thing as, as feedlot grass fed, yeah, there where is. they have animals in Cut, tightly confined, the exact same mm -hmm. thing as confinement, mm -hmm. and they're just fed hay products, usually yeah, pelletized. So, got, yeah. mm -hmm. um, so they're not fed any grain, and that's watched very legalistically, but mm -hmm. they just get. Um, but still, very it's high a quality feeding operation. I mean, we did see some confined. operations in New Zealand when we were in New Zealand. They were like grass-fed beef, and the animals weren't quite taken care of. Right. They had sunburn, and they were just kind of like thrown out in the pasture. And right. Kind of like, eh. it was like, really, this is grass-fed. It's not quite right. That happy cow thing going on. Right. So that's where we want to measure outcomes. And and again, what we're talking about would dovetail beautifully. Like if you had organic certified livestock, if you already had organic beef. Mm -hmm. 
this just dovetails with it because it's like the consumer gets to know there are no chemicals in here, but at the same time, it's like, but let's quantify how much good happened. Yeah, know, beyond organic. Beyond and the same with grass-fed. Yeah. We work really closely with the American Grass-Fed Association, and they're doing really, really incredible things. But what they don't have in their story is how much could happen, and so we can measure that. And then the ones that maybe are struggling, we can mobilize support. So it's not a punitive approach of like, okay, you get slapped, you're out of this deal, go find some other options. It's like, no, no, how do we help people? The whole mm -hmm. thing is about scaling up and helping people and bringing them along the journey. So that's what I'm focused on a lot. I've been traveling. We've been building the supply side, so we've, we've now, we're just in our earliest phases. We've got 300 farms that have gone through the worldwide. data collection process worldwide. worldwide. Yeah, so, um, so that's happening. So the supply prototype is built, and now we're moving into the retail prototype. So we're looking for really close partners that want to come on board with us. So I've been kind of out on a traveling roadshow, and so in the last six weeks I've been to Paris, London, Seattle, Mexico, Denver, Oklahoma, D.C., New Jersey, New York, here, <laughs> and then from here I go to Denver again, then to Virginia, and then I'm home. Six weeks. I count 15 places. <laughs> so, <laughs> what time is it? What time zone are you in? I don't know where I'm at. Hello, Ohio. <laughs> oh, wait. So sorry. Oops, You're in Los Angeles? Wrong stuff. <laughs> Yeah, Sends so I'm out here meeting with brands predominantly um, that really are those kind of forward-thinking, tip-of-the-sphere brands. The brands that are leaders in the space, not the ones that are followers, and we're going to wait till 10 other competitors do it, but really the bold ones. And it's often mid-sized brands run by people under 40 that really have a lot more of these values and leaving something to our children kind of baked into their DNA. Yeah. Um, and so those, like we work really closely with a company called Epic Provisions based in Austin, and they've been help, helping funding this startup from the beginning. Uh, and actually, I was there with their co-founder today, talking to another brand about how they, how and why they should get involved. So, so. Do you think the like the Amazon, the Whole Foods thing, is that going to help merge? Is that going to help, or just going to just make how it all feel? corporate? Yeah. I mean, just like the, the small is guys it gonna are going to get squeezed out. The organic, you know, progressive industry, or, or it's going to squeeze out the small guys so that they can't compete with the big boys. I don't know. It's too sad. I don't know. Yeah. I'll be careful here and say yeah. I was in Seattle recently. <laughs> um, you know, I think that... Just your personal opinion. We're not yeah, there's always say, a question about... Then you have Walmart carrying whole organic. Right. Some people so say it's say, a good thing, and some right. people yeah, say it's a horrible thing. It's a, it's a fight on both sides. It's a big sides. debate. I think, I think at Echo yeah. Farm... I, I mean, think I don't it was think Echo you would Farm. have that much division yeah. if there wasn't some truth in both camps. So. I think that was a heated discussion at Echo at Farm that time. At that Echo Farm, yeah. It was Stonyfield and then the Elliot Coleman or something? Yeah, whatever. It was the thing was, well, how big was... You know, if if you can't get organic in my neighborhood, like Compton or whatever, but there's a Whole Foods, then that's the only way I'm going to get organic. Or Walmart, right. or Walmart. Or Walmart, yeah. So. Right. What did I say? Whole Foods, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is where. That's where it gets a little tricky because there, there's no there's no black and white. There isn't. I, think, yeah, I mean, I, I think wish there was. want it black yeah, and white, and it's everybody not. Everybody wants a silver bullet, and yeah. it's like it's not. for us, it's like AA. Like the first thing we all have to acknowledge is like there <laughs> isn't a there's silver a bullet, <laughs> right? Oh you know, it's it's like, all messed up, so. right? And that's where we take it down to a context. So you know, I'll come back to your question, but like people often want to get down in the debate of how much meat should they eat, mm. and it's like mm. I just really there's don't no want answer. to go there. Mm -hmm. My answer to that is if you are going to choose to eat meat, mm -hmm. eat the right meat. Yeah. That's it. You know, and I'm not I'm not qualified to tell you you, you should eat meat. eat the right vegetables. I mean, eat the right... Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's, and I don't think that people are qualified to say those people over there should be Which diet meat. is right and which... You know, there's a lot of places in the world that all they have around them is grasslands and animals. Like, they've been, 
you know, protein, meat, animal-based, you know, diets from the beginning, I think it goes both ways. Yeah. And I think this whole notion of, I think it comes down to, is scale inherently evil? And my answer to that is probably no, but I think there's a long history of bad things that have come out of that, mm-hmm. lots of unintended consequences, and when you're the biggest ship in the ocean, your waves are the biggest. So when you make a wrong turn, mm-hmm. it's a bad one. You know? <laughs> and, and all the other boats are rocking around out there. Going, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> so I, I think, you know, it's that, you know, kind of, you know, with great power comes right. great responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side, I don't know if we impact 8 billion people and the, the huge problems facing humanity without everyone at the table. Uh-huh. And I think that efficiencies and economies of scale have to come into play in there. Do we need that to be authentic and verified and trustworthy and and based on humanity, not just based on profits? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. How we get there is a little bit more of a challenge, but yeah. I think that my take on it is anyone who wants to sit down at the Hill be part of the solution, I'm happy to at least talk yeah. to them. What do you yeah. think the most, that's like good. you said, there's a country or a region that's like on the verge, like it go... I mean, China's one thing is China's like dangerously could tip a tip a lot. China, I mean, they're doing just mm-hmm. a billion people. There, India is another one, but the population is there. One place, like say, oh, they could go either way, or other places that are like. Ooh, oh, I think hit the nail on the head with the, the two big ones there. Um, you know, it's funny the way that we approach this is, you know, we, there's obviously hot spots where it's like boy, you know, we could do a lot of good there. But mm-hmm. our whole approach is a pull versus push. We don't want to inject ourselves into mm-hmm. a place before they're ready. So we really try to empower local cheerleaders to come and bring us into that region. And then the whole thing of, if they become a hub, the whole thing of what a hub does is then they take our core curriculum that's worked all over the world and then they kind of adapt it to their local social, economic, political context that makes sense for them in their region. So... Um, I, I think, you know, I'd love to do a lot more work in Asia. There's so much grassland over there that, that you know, and, and the Middle East. I mean, we were doing... Serious. Clean slate, almost. I mean, that's like... Yeah, and there's places out there that... One of the things that really concerns me is you see these places where they've totally desertified. It's just sand dunes out there. And they want to plant trees. And you're skipping a step in succession. Oh, yeah, like, they step. weren't yeah. former forests to begin with. They were former grasland. And there are places they put billions of dollars, billions with a B, no, yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's to plant work. trees out there. And they just turn out to withered sticks. Uh-huh. And it's like, you're kind of missing the point here, you know? It's like, you can't, just because trees skip are a way step. to sequester yeah. carbon yeah. And, they, and forests are great mm-hmm. things, they're not applicable everywhere. It's not a silver bullet going yeah. back full mm-hmm. circle mm-hmm. to what we were talking about there. And so... The whole world needs a lot of help. You know? It's all messed up. It all comes back to that. Yeah, we no, I just said it's all messed up. Southern Africa, <laughs> Central America, <laughs> our own Midwest. Yeah. I mean, America. But they, America you're, what you're trying to do is try to make them feed themselves, mm-hmm. basically, be self sufficient. Um, in terms of you said Zimbabwe or Turkey or yeah, I mean, I think they said like yeah. it sounds like a success. Story well, it's happening. Too. What Brazil is? Brazil is. Brazil is like the one that's going tipping the point the other way. Right. It's not. They're not going back. They're kind of progressing into that. Some good things are happening in Brazil. Some bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, deforestation is still Still active and happening, and still an issue. And you know, that's one where it's like animals don't belong in the jungle. Like we would not say, let's put grazing here and let's you know cut down a forest to put pasture land in. 
you know, it needs to be appropriate to a place. So, but a little further south, south there, we do a ton of work. In, yeah, in I think Argentina. Argentina yeah, Chile, Argentina has the yeah, pastures. Uruguay, Uruguay. Mm -hmm. They have the old cattle. The, mm -hmm. old, the original cattle. They have old, yeah. yeah. Heritage breeds of right. cattle. They yeah. do. Versus they the, we were talking. We had the other people on. We said, well, they cattle, and then they said they breed them to Big. bigger udders, and then they need more huge. I mean, uh, yeah. chemicals yeah. to keep them healthy and because they're not well. well. It's just all holistic, but it, it comes down. And then to heritage. Shit. The older breeds sometimes are more the older breeds and the size of the breeds. I mean, yeah. you're right. I mean, the more the um, resistant ones. to the local diseases. Larger frames, like running a Ferrari. I mean, it needs like the <laughs> highest level fuel, <laughs> and that's. And the little bug so that comes around just knocks mm -hmm. up. Yeah, so. and so then, then you know, when we've got all these animals that are designed to be finished in feedlots, part of the transition period we're in right now of getting people to go back to the land is we have to get genetics that are appropriate to go back to right. the land and be grass-fed. Right, the animals an animal that... To eat mm -hmm. grass its whole life is a very different thing than for the last 90-plus days of its life it's going to eat this really, really rich, yep. We had that discussion food. with chickens, chickens broilers, the they were... Took used to take like a year to mature now yeah, they no, take four months and you know to yeah. get to market you know yeah. and you say well something's wrong uh, meat there. bird yeah meat birds typically are six weeks and if you raise them on yeah versus heritage breeds yeah. Like, yeah yeah, yeah. You know, it I mean, takes when you look at a heritage rooster he's like scrawny at like a year old <laughs> right? it's like there's no <laughs> meat on that you know, it's, it's scrawny. So and you it's do have issues with heritage, losing the heritage varieties around the world? Or? Oh, of course. I mean, I still think, I don't want to downplay heritage genetics or traditional wisdom. I mean, yeah. both are a commodity that's going away incredibly fast. And uh, Diversity, so you have diversity. seed diversity we have issues exactly. with. Exactly. Everything's hybridized. Oh, yeah. Losing the yeah, we're losing, we're losing, we're losing species, and yeah. I think they like recently all the wheat discovered in the whole world is I mean, like the same. Wheat. I should have said. I think it, the first yeah. extinction was wild, and now, uh -huh. and now we're it's losing domestic, our domestic, domestic species, exactly. and it's mass yeah. extinction happening. Sorry. Yeah. You know, I think they found they discovered like one little. I think it's a cow like that stands this big. Mm -hmm. They found in like an Indian village, so like they found like the original cow mm -hmm. of India. Something was like. Small framed animals mm -hmm. make a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, absolutely. when they really are. Uh, and then I was looking. I was reading about the the goats of Afghanistan. Have you seen those? Exactly. I've never seen these goats ever. They're, they're just like amazing, beautiful creatures. Right. They've never seen them ever, but they're yeah. finding them in these little villages. Oh, I miss working with goats. Goats are my favorite. They have <laughs> yeah, so much had character. A lot of goats. Yeah. I love goats. Look at our yeah. peak. We had like three hundred. Yeah. yeah. What's the smallest? I know you say hubs, or you you know you work with hubs and farms around. What's like the smallest? What we consider the smallest? Can a home, homeowner yeah, or the average person? Like take this and take something and do it to their backyard or front yard or yeah. So to quickly clarify, a hub, a hub is like a an innovative resource center. Mm -hmm. So they they're like um, if you're familiar with like NRCS, like they're yeah. they're like an extension agent that like helps people ongoing, and then they work with dozens of farmers in their region. I mean, mm -hmm. hundreds of farmers in their region, sometimes more than that. Um, but in terms of the question that we, I mean question we always get does it scale down does it scale up you know so we'll go oh what you're talking about that's that holistic managed stuff's great but where i live it's too dry or where i live it's too wet or i have too many animals or i have too few animals or whatever and and so the scale one comes up a lot and it's a good example so going back to that idea of building a plan building recovery in as the basis of the plan if you have one acre and let's say you wanted to get a couple of sheep so you get two sheep and you put them in these polynet electric fences. So there's these mm -hmm. fences that are yeah. like woven nets mm -hmm. and then you electrify them. Um, and it keeps predators out and holds the sheep in. So you put out this electric fence. And 160 foot length of this fence, which is the standard size they come in, is a 40 foot square. So you've got a 40 foot square that's going around your one acre. 
if you move those animals once a day, you have 27 moves on an acre, which means you could build in 26 days of rest, if that's how much rest you need. If you moved them once a week, you have half a year of rest before they come back. So it becomes context specific of how much rest mm -hmm. you need to build in, well, how much the sheep yeah. need, to, good need to eat. But you can move 27 times on the acre with the standardized fence that comes out of the box, a 40, 40 foot square. Um, so absolutely, you can scale this down to just, there are people that are doing this in their backyard with chickens and ducks, uh, which is what I raise. <laughs> now that I'm not on my big giant 2,000 acres, I've got three quarters of an acre, chickens and ducks and a dog. Um, and so you, know, you can do it all the way to the small, all the way to the large. We're working with ranches that, I mean, there have been million acre ranches that we've been involved in. So. Well, that's pretty specific. So, like, you know, that five acres and independence thing, you know, where, you know, where oh, people totally like ourselves would have, you know, an acre, two acres, three acres, five acres, ten acres. In, in, in well, particularly if they're not doing it for, like, marketing. Yeah, exactly. If they're for just, for you're just your right. family. Yeah. yeah. You're not business. Because sometimes a lot of the problems is a scaling is when people become into the market. But if you bring the food, which is what we, bring the food home, you know, you try to sustain yourself right. and your family around you and maybe your neighbors and just bring it more localized. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it totally works down and up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and that's, and then again, our, our framework's so flexible. We've got branded as the desert people because we're trying to address <laughs> desertification. <laughs> but it's like, we did an event in London a few years ago and had a big conference there. And we're like, everyone there was like, we love you guys. But we can grow grass, like, no matter what. Yeah, it's all green out <laughs> like, here. that's not the point. <laughs> they missed it. Yeah. So, yeah, it totally is, can work anywhere in the globe. It's, it's a really flexible planning process that happens to have really amazing results wherever we go. So, yeah, we've been refining it for a long time. I mean, we've been working on it for decades. So, yeah. It's a long time. So, what, can you tell us, well, I know without divulging anything, but anything that's upcoming, future, current projects that you're excited working documentary on? Documentary films um, or, or, you know, what's... Definitely going to be doing more documentary work. Okay. Um, definitely going to hear more about brands that we're working with. But all that's kind of in yes, development. Yeah. What else is I'll big? be interested in learning about the pet Some food. Some new hubs are coming on board. Uh, Pakistan just got accredited. Uh, we've got Wyoming and Minnesota coming on board right now. We typically get about 10 new hubs per year. Um, in the past, we've done, and here's a good one. Um, in the past, we've done um, a central global event every year. And so we would get, you know, a thousand people to go and all come to one place in the world and kind of celebrate holistic management. And just didn't really feel very responsible as like, the climate solution people to have everybody fly to a central place yeah, out of their kind of local region and and I think there's still some value in that but there's ways to do that virtually so we're decentralizing that model and now twice a year all of our hubs host a centralized event on the same day so it's like you could go to the California hub so like the last one they just said was in the Bay Area they'll probably do one in Southern California not too long and so like you could go do an event at your California hub which is nearby you know, it's driving distance or train or bicycle distance and not have to get on a plane. But they're all talking about the same concept on the same day of the year. Mm -hmm. So we can still globally advertise it as a, a, a big event. You can live stream or FaceTime yeah. or whatever yeah. people Call do. So there's one in, in Southern California coming up? There probably awesome. will be one next year. Yay. Yeah, next year. At we're, risk, we're, we're an at-risk population. I know. Everything else happenings everywhere else in Los Angeles. We have a lot of people here. Yeah. Lost, I, I grew up like 15 minutes from here in Santa Cruz yeah. Valley. I remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, you said that. Your yeah. family's still here? Or? Yeah, I'm going to go have dinner with you tonight. Okay. Nice. Yeah. yeah, some yes. stuff. Speaking of family, like I said, um, um, we're minus a family member today. Um, our dad, of course, and he met you. And really, like I said, you guys hit it off. It was really yeah. fun. and. And stuff carrying on as best we can. We'll 
behind on some things, but yeah, just and just wanted to say that you know that he really enjoyed you know hanging out with you and when you come down and visit. Too, yeah, so I, was, I enjoyed him too. I was just on the phone with my mom on the way down. My dad's got some chronic health issues mm-hmm. at this point that are stuff I know you guys know all about. Yeah, it's, so. it's really hard. Yeah, it's really hard. But I really mm-hmm. respected the heck out of your dad <laughs> and uh, the passion, it, you, how you speak, how he spoke yeah. was. They broke them all. Yeah, it's just incredible. Like I said, we're just, we would just sit back and what, listen to you guys talk. You know, thing. And now, now we have to talk, and it's like, I know what I want to say, but I can't enunciate or pronunciate or whatever. Eloquently. Public speaking is not, I just avoid that. So you and Dad were good at that. Yeah. Yeah. Share, you know. We did to, walk to. out on some stuff. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, like now? What about? I know. Dad's like, no. I remember those conferences. Yeah. Like zip. Go. And you're like, everybody's shifting in their chairs. I'm like, come on, guys, stop. We got to go. They were eco farm. You guys were like, let's just go to a session. Come on, something. I, I, that. Was, that was I think great. with the because it happens at a good time of year, January, mm-hmm. where most farms are yeah. are slow, mm-hmm. and and then it, because sometimes, like I said, you don't get to talk to like-minded people. Yeah. And going to really nice. going to events like that mm-hmm. and where you can just. Because I mean, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, <laughs> I mean, most of the people you're talking. I mean, LA yeah. is like. Uh, so what's your problem? Yeah. Of uh, the certification. Really? Yeah. Dessert? No. Yeah. No, I was like yeah missing right. a okay. missing well, a point. Well, maybe because of the weather. It's it's kind of drizzly, cold, and then it's gonna and jump days, to 106 100. Monday yeah, and Tuesday. Re- I had to look like, at my phone yeah. again. I was like, and when what? you bring that up to people, they just don't see how that's actually gonna affect the garden. Yeah, yeah it doesn't affect that. Them, I think that's it's it's one of the best things that's driving agriculture forward right now, or alternative agriculture forward, is this nature of notion of like. Well, I'm supporting someone's bucolic lifestyle, and it's like beautiful, <laughs> relaxing. The they're just like sitting in a hammock, like picking fruit for me throughout the day. I call it skipping to the tulips. I'm not skipping to the tulips, people here. Right, and then the reality of it is so hard, and it's still such a peasant culture. Like Justice says, you don't go into farming to make millions. Of like subsistence, yeah. I mean, the farmers that make millions you know, started with you know 10 million and got to you know, less than one. <laughs> it's like you lose money faster than you make it, and so many people stay in it for the lifestyle or the legacy. The other thing we see in, in ranching is it tends to be these multi-generational operations. Mm-hmm. And I've often thought about writing a book or a, a short story called Working for Ghosts mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. all of these ideas still get filtered through this like generational checklist. Like how would mom and dad or grandma and grandpa have felt about this? Mm-hmm. And we it, do, in some ways it kind of limits. I mean, we're, doing, we're doing that too. Because yeah. We have to because it's, it's almost been a year and mm-hmm. two months will be a year. And we have try to keep true mm-hmm. but also adapt and to try to change and, to and, and it's like it's hard. well without you know you know we're we believe, blowing we, up the template you yeah. know or blowing the you foundation don't blow. it's not right. tweak, well it's you not tweak t- it, it's yeah. tweaking it it's yeah. just like mm-hmm. like you said i mean obviously the bottom line you need to stay in business yeah. exactly you're I mean, not going to make millions yeah and you're yeah. not going to do like it like i said he said the lifestyle legacy but it's a lifestyle it's the love for it. Right. If you don't right. love and it, then yeah. it's the legacy. If right. you don't love it, if you it's don't love not it, going to happen. This is a lot of responsibility to carry, and I don't, yeah. I don't know that consumers have gotten to that point to really get that yet. I mean, I hear a lot of people that want to get back to the land, and I come from outside of this space, and so I can recognize that, but I just don't know they recognize the amount of work and really appreciate it. You know, people, chickens, we started the conversation talking about chickens. 
people always be like, well, what if I got my own broilers and raised them? And it'd be like, here's a starter <laughs> kit. Go like, for it. Go. You'll never think $25 a bird is expensive <laughs> again. <laughs> like, just <laughs> rock and roll. Have at it. Like, I you t- can even pick your feet up from us. <laughs> like, we'll sell yeah. it to you at cost, and you don't have to when buy it. When I do it. the chicken class, I like the first thing well, I just say. Well, eggs. Yeah. When, yeah. I, when I, I do it, when well, I do, yeah, raise your own now. Yeah. When yeah. I do the chicken yeah. class, the first thing I tell people is, like, it's going to cost you money. Mm-hmm. It's not free. Right. It's not cheap. Right. They think, oh, I have free. No. $8 a dozen is, I still think, cheap. cheap. And again, it goes back to this cultural piece mm-hmm. that there's some money to be made in beef because people have a perceived value that it's like, okay, well, it's a nice thing and like it's a luxury item Big and I'll, I'll, I'll pay you know a lot of money for that. But poultry, chicken, and eggs really struggle with that. I think, I think dairy struggles with that a little bit as well. But, but eggs are a great example because $8, $9, $10 sounds exorbitant to people and when you compare it with other proteins again they'll easily switch to those fillets and ribeyes and pay a lot of money but it's like if I'm getting four servings of complete the most complete protein in every single dozen and it's eight dollars dirt cheap it is cheap but the thing the comparison is when you go to the go to Walmart or go to these uh, and you can get two dozen for five bucks and you're like okay well, strictly if on the bottom mom's line, struggling strictly to feed your family. Totally. You yeah. say, well, it's rent and food. What are you going to spend it on? Yeah. yeah. And you, and nine out of ten people is going to take the two uh, yeah. two fifty a dozen. Mm-hmm. Just the equation yeah. we're constantly trying to trying to crack. And I was just at a working group yesterday that was a bunch of organizations working on this same issue of how do we create premiums for the farmer without making the food more expensive? Because we've got a lot of more struggling consumers out there that are just trying to get healthy food. We've got a lot of farmers out there that are just trying to make a living. And and given the opportunity, they want to do the right thing. For the last 50 years, we've asked them, grow cheap and fast food. And that's what they did. Some of them, many of them, begrudgingly. It's not necessarily what they wanted to do. A lot of them switched really good programs because that's all the market would buy. That's all the market would recognize. So now we're trying to find that how do we get to where we solve both ends of the spectrum there and still have everybody make a living. And there's not an easy And then they have the rising cost of labor. The minimum wage in California, especially, is going up to Absolutely. 15 bucks a, an hour in a couple of years, and right. they, it's like, well, these farmers, you know, they get the immigrant labor and the stuff like that, and it's like, I think the government's got to play more of a role in this. I know for a lot of people, that's a dirty word, um, and 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 I share some of those feelings. But world governments spend 6.6 trillion dollars a year on the mismanagement of natural assets. Hmm. That's 11 percent of global GDP. If even a small percentage of that money was moved over to proactive planning and having a better agricultural system, you would mitigate so much of the rest of that damage. Meanwhile, we've got, you know, all the subsidies out there that are paying for bad agriculture that's degrading the system, and we can prove it's degrading the system, and yet we're Soy, paying corn, for it to get cheaper. Like that, yeah. If we could move that over to these systems, it would, it would bridge the gap between both ends of the spectrum where people are really struggling. So I think it has to be part of the equation. And so, and I mean, we know that. I mean, we've been here thirty years. I guess in the in the movement, in the sustainable farming movement, about the last twenty years, been having a pulse on that. Um, I mean, what's your take on like you have a, a positive? You hope, um, you know, um, maybe some thoughts, uh, your own thoughts of what. Yeah, um, you know, we're doomed. No, we no, we're, right. we're getting there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've been on this this regenerative journey. Right? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been on this regenerative journey for fifteen years. Um, 
I don't know that I thought we were going to be at this much progress 15 yeah. years later. Like, I still am very largely hopeful. I mean, I spent a room yesterday, 30 different organizations all working on net positive results. How do we do this? Um, that gives me a ton of hope. Uh, I, I don't think that we can have this handed to people, though, either. I think everybody needs to take responsibility for their role in it, whatever level the stakeholder it is. And if, if right now we're talking to mostly consumers, consumers need to get more involved with where their food comes from. And the more they can do to grow it, the more they respect it. I, I mean, I've thought for a long time, if we had a year of service be a requirement to get into university, to get into like a state school, if you had to go serve in the Peace Corps or serve on an organic farm, we'd be building a culture into people that understood this at a very young formative age of like, this is a lot of work. And I see all the benefits, all the ecosystem services, all the health to local communities that happen when farms are managed appropriately. And they go into school so much more ready to learn. And you're older, having seen a little bit more of the world. The hands-on learning. Yeah. But what we do in that system is we shift a subsidy from being financial to being a labor subsidy. And so that we actually bring down the cost of production because these people are there more on room and board, not there mm -hmm. to go make a bunch make of money. A living, yeah. uh, and so that, I don't know, that's like one idea I've had as a while that, that you know, could be a way to address multiple like, fronts of this like at one time. Intern kind of like, like an intern, intern system that was not illegal, but actually like formalized yeah, by the government and encouraged yeah. and that you got some sort of benefit that would play into school yeah, like or something maybe else. maybe some like, student loan. Ex something like something that. Something taken off student loans. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, people's obviously hearts are in the right place, but sometimes they don't realize how much I think we read articles they want to go out and farm or go mm. out and raise chickens and they're like, oh. And then reality <laughs> hits them and then they go back to the corporate world. But it's, like I said, even hard. if they just took it a year, like I said, you make a better person, you make a more conscious person. Even yeah. if they don't choose that lifestyle. I think it's okay they don't yeah. choose yeah. lifestyle. Yeah. But some will. It's not for everybody. But at least it's understand. Not for everybody. Building a foundation. I mean, you look at some of the older, more traditional cultures that everybody has someone in their family that still has an estate. Mm -hmm. so think of France as an yeah, example. Yeah. So everyone in Paris has some family member that ha in the south of France has a farming estate. They're still actively farming that land. Vineyard, yeah, Every vineyard. major holiday they go down there and at least there's exposure to it and you look at how different the food culture is there compared to here. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's true. fast food, slow food, the slow food movement. Fast food. Yeah. I mean, there is. <laughs> Italy <laughs> had hours. that. Italy, yeah. Italy yeah, had that. Yeah. Everybody knew somebody who had land. Yeah. Who, uh, yeah. I, I do think, though, that somewhere we need to address convenience, and I think convenience comes up more than price. I think in our fast-paced world, I mean, I've got two kids, a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old, and when they were in car seats, it was like, I don't want to go in a restaurant and sit down and slow food. Like, I want to go through a drive through and if I pay three times as much, that's okay for healthy food, but I, there are times in life people need that convenience piece, and I'm not sure that one's really been cracked well. I think there's a reason they call it fast food and not cheap food, because yeah. the fast, I think, for some times in your life is is the more important moniker there. And I think that it's okay that more places develop that have a faster model if it's driven on quality. But it has to be built around a larger slow food culture that understands. Yeah, we had the, I just on a touch base on marketing, we had the Good Eggs was one. Mm -hmm. They've been um, New York, New Orleans, and Los Angeles, and San Francisco. And Boston, too. And Boston, or whatever. And they tried L.A., and they shut down everything. Generally, L.A. sunk down all the other bands. <laughs> because they, you know, so, you go back so to many Francisco. distance to mm -hmm. deliver sure. and stuff like that. I mean, it was so great for us financially, mm -hmm. and it was, good. it was a good concept. But to get the fresh food because they delivered to one hub, and then they delivered things. But their overhead was too much, and 
LA, LA, LA put the rest you know, of it. And it was it was a seemed like a good model to copy, but right. it was financially it didn't work out for them. You know, but Our hour is almost up. Okay. Um, I don't know if you want to have any. Uh, that was really good last words, but or how people can be come involved, find you. What to look um, for? You know, online yeah. and what to look for and. Um, people are interested in if it. people are interested in finding yeah if people want to find out more i would say go to our, our website it's, it's savory.global so everybody is kind of dropping the dot com and the dot nets and so ours is dot global um organization's called the savory institute uh, and we've got a whole array of things on there that website's actually going through an overhaul uh early next year we'll have a whole new site and then we've got some new pages coming out in the next couple of weeks the project i talked about is called land to market um, and it's driven with this verification tool called ecological outcome verification. Um, so more of that is coming on the website. Um, that's on the Savory website? As we speak, Or yeah. is that a separate website? No, it's on the Savory website. So it'll be like a separate landing page on that website. Yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter? Yeah, we do all that. We've got the Facebook, the Instagram. I'm on Facebook okay. and Instagram. Uh, and then the other thing, just for people that want to take it to the next level, I would say connect with your local hub. Go and spend some time out on the land. I think that that's really where we see the deepest changes in people. When people touch the soil again it goes back to how i started this there's something primal in that there's something deep inside of us that calls to everybody that it's like we're a part of nature and i think if we get people out on the land that's when the f deepest richest epiphanies happen is out there and they and i just don't think they get it before that I think there's a lot of walls up and so um and some of those walls make sense in a very urban civilization but well technology take in the, the way day to, shed yeah. those technology's in the way technology's in the way um I look at my phone. <laughs> Everybody, but, but I would encourage everybody to spend more time out on the land because I think that there really will be um, more awakening that happens, or will it will uh, speed up the awakening. Appreciation, at least, a definite appreciation. And we have a, a really cool network of hubs in North America that can, can help facilitate that. That's awesome. Well, thanks well, for taking out. We're one of your stops like, in the 15. Like, hey, look at the <laughs> I'm like, yes, so it's good it's to see really you good again. seeing you again. Yeah, you uh, one of the yeah. stops on his yeah. worldwide tour. Yeah, you know, <laughs> as you whisk off into no, the you guys for having me. It's good to be back. Good to catch up. Yeah, yeah. always a we'll pleasure. We'll probably talk so. for another bit after. Yeah, after, <laughs> after the mics go silent. It's only recorded, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'd like to um, thank you, uh, everyone again for tuning in. Until next time, we say keep on going. All right. All Let's go down to the urban homestead, Pasadena by the freeway. Right down there on the urban homestead, Jules and his family are working away. Come on down to the farm in the city, back to the future, back to the plan. Right down there on the urban homestead, loving the life, back into the land. Oh, 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 help the garden grow, singing. The Urban Homestead theme song was written and recorded by Tom Fair. Thanks, Tom. We've come to the end of this show. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to tune in again. Until next time, this is Annie, Justin, Jordan. Keep, Keep on, on growing. growing.
folks. Remember to follow us on our website, urbanhomestead.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We love to hear your feedback. And if you'd like to become a podcast patron, go to urbanhomestead.org forward slash podcast.